Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley, and this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, we're dedicating the full hour to politics. With the September 4th primaries less than a month away, there's lots to discuss, from the battle for the Secretary of State to the hotly contested Suffolk County DA's race. We'll be working through some of this year's most compelling campaigns. And women and candidates of color all over the country are throwing their hats in the ring this primary season. How is this pattern playing out here in Massachusetts? later in the show. If Ohio's 12th district is any indication, a blue wave may be coming in November. In a special election that many considered a bellwether for the midterms, the race between Republican Troy Balderson and Democrat Danny O'Connor is still too close to call this morning. We'll take a look at how primaries have been unfolding elsewhere in the U.S. Here to bring us their insight and analysis, the Mass Politics Profs, whose blog is on the WGBH website. Joining me from our satellite studio here at the Boston Public Library are Shannon Jenkins, professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Welcome back, Shannon. Thanks for having us. Glad to have you. Aaron O'Brien, associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Aaron. Good to be here. And I'm glad to have you. And from the studio, of New England Public Radio, Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. And hello to you, Gerald. Happy to be here as always. Great. Well, let's start with uh, one of the most uh, compelling races going on right now, and that's a race for the 7th uh, Congressional District featuring the incumbent Michael Capuano and his challenger, Ayanna Presley. Uh, Gerald, both you and Aaron have written about this. So, Aaron, I'll let you start off and just give me your general assessment about why this uh, has captivated you so. Yeah, well, it has. First, <laughs> to say I love this race. I am a political nerd at heart, and we finally have a really interesting primary. I love this race because um, they're two quality candidates. I think uh, it's intellectually honest to say you can make, or Democrats can make a very good case for both of them. And so in that context, I think uh, the, the why Ayanna Presley, I'm, I'm most interested in her running because of, of what it potentially does to the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. The Democratic Party in Massachusetts has controlled the legislature since 1959 and has been incredibly slow, one might say abhorrent, at electing individuals of a color and especially women of color. So I think the lasting implications of her race, especially if she wins and it's an uphill battle, is that the Democratic, the that the Democratic Party in Massachusetts has to expand candidate selection. If she beats a very popular Mike Capuano, who's a good progressive and is able to do so, I think a lot of individuals who have been held back by the Democratic Party as an institution will consider running. Um, let's take a listen to this is City Councilor Ayanna Presley announcing her bid for the Massachusetts seventh congressional seat earlier this year, and she makes a point, Aaron, that you make. I've been called a traitor for challenging an incumbent. So simply, 
this isn't the way things are done here in Massachusetts. Now, I just wanted to play that because uh, part of what you wrote about was that, whoa, this is, you know, nobody does this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's bold. And, you know, in that piece you're referencing, I say it's bold to run in against an incumbent. It's bold to do so as a woman in Massachusetts when we are middle to back of the pack for electing women. And it's really, really bold to do so as a woman of color when uh, Massachusetts hasn't been favorable to those candidacies. So I think uh, many individuals who have problems with the Democratic Party nationally or problems with the Democratic pa Party in the state should look favorably on her running regardless of who you're supporting. Uh, Gerald, I'm going to have you weigh in because you've written a bit about this race as well. And how do you see it? <clears throat> well, I, first of all, I agree with everything uh, my my esteemed colleague has just said, uh, the, the thing, yes, of course, uh, the interesting uh, element of the race to me, of course, is how her race uh, is different or similar from other insurgencies in and out of the state. Uh, but to my mind, one of the reasons why I agree uh, with Shannon that the that Democrats can make a good with case Aaron, for both but is go ahead. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, mm -hmm. it's because Ayanna Presley is a professional politician. She's not someone who's never run before. She's not. She doesn't fit the sort of outsider mold as uh, closely as many of the folks around the country who are sort of lumping together with her do. In other words, she actually is making a pitch that I am uh, the future of the party. But I'm also, uh, I understand how to play this game. I also, uh, you know, you know, she's not saying I'm a politician, but she's saying I'm a professional. Uh, and she's, she's actually talking to two different audiences. She's talking to establishment interests and saying, I'm not a threat to you. In fact, you'll probably want me to be there for you going forward, not this person who's really not representative of where the party's going. So she's, a, I think, a very compelling candidate who uh, has, is, you know, we, we talk about her doing something and nobody thinks she should do. Well, it is kind of her time, I think. I think that she can say it is my time to do this because the party is moving in the direction that I will be taking it. So I, I, I push back a little bit on the idea that she's this outsider who is challenging the status quo. She certainly is challenging the status quo, but she's not she's not threatening it. Um, talk a little bit more about this whole outsider-insider status uh, Ayanna Presley may bring, Gerald Duquette, because you made a point in your piece that um, in other parts of the country, that's responded to differently. And yes. in Massachusetts, though, you know, n not the same. Uh, you, can, you can claim to be outsider uh, in a certain kind of way in other parts of the country, but here, not necessarily, you say. Right, and, and that, that comes from my sense that uh, Massachusetts has a different kind of political culture than the parts of the country where that is selling. Uh, Massachusetts voters have always, in my lifetime, as I've observed them, been very willing to accept a, pol a professional politician. Every political speech I've ever attended in Massachusetts of a politician, the politician is absolutely wide open and willing to talk about in a transactional way. Thanks for supporting me in my career. You know, in other words, we don't dislike career politicians. We want to send people to Beacon Hill and to Washington to get stuff for us, to be influential on our behalf, to use their influence on our behalf. That's, that's basically not as anti-politics as the parts of the country where you can sell a candidacy by saying, I'm going to change, I'm going to drain the swamp. You can't win a seat in Massachusetts by saying we're going to drain the swamp. That is a moralistic kind of approach that uh, voters may sort of agree with in the abstract, but when, when push comes to shove, they're looking for people who can wield influence on their behalf. 
Um, that's my guest, Gerald Ducati, is associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Before he spoke, Erin O'Brien, associate professor of political science at UMass Boston, uh, made her point. And now I'm going to turn to you, Shannon Jenkins, a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. But before I do, I want to play two clips, one from Ayanna Presley and one from Michael Capuano at this very recent debate this week, which was held at the UMass Boston McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Global Studies. So in the first cut, this is City Councilor Eliana Presley responding to a question about whether race is a factor in her race against Representative Michael Capuano. I happen to be black and a woman and unapologetically proud to be both, but that is not the totality of my identity. I am a wife. I'm a mother. I was a caregiver to my mother end of life with a pre-existing condition. I'm a leader and I'm a problem solver, and that's what this district deserves. However, representation does matter. All right, that was Ayanna Presley. Now, this is Capuano's response to Ayanna Presley's statement, defending his record and experience representing his district. It wasn't a vote that brought money back here to rebuild Ruggles Station. It wasn't a vote that rebuilt all of the community health centers. It wasn't a vote that got the Fairmount line to actually be treated in an equitable way, not built and then treated in an equitable way, that's advocacy. That's advocacy knowing how to get things done, knowing how to get things done for the benefit of this district. So, Shannon Jenkins, I think this is the reason why a lot of people are like, oh! <laughs> it, it's, I'm so glad you played those because the point that I wanted to make, and I'm looking at Aaron's notes, was exactly what I was going to say and about the difference between we talk about in political science substantive representation versus descriptive representation. And from a substantive sense, that means sort of what you do in the legislature and the policies that you produce. There's some differences between men and women, but but men can act and white people can act um, to produce substantive representation for the interest of women, women of color, LGBTQ people. But the research also really talks about the importance of descriptive representation and particularly what it means for voters and the public to see a government that looks like them, right? We haven't had that here in Massachusetts for mm -hmm. so many people. Um, and I think that's, while Anna Presley doesn't really want to make that case, I think that's one of maybe the most compelling arguments that she can make. Um, the research suggests it has important role model effects on girls, women, when they see women that look like them running. People, uh, women, people of color, feel more trusting and connected to government when government looks like them. Um, and so, in a substantive sense, I don't think there's a huge difference between the two candidates. Um, and But descriptively, I think even while Presley doesn't want to talk about that, I think it's important to talk about because I think probably, right, a lot of people would feel more positively if they saw a government that looked more like them. Um, Massachusetts isn't hugely diverse, right, as compared to other states, but we are becoming more diverse. And it's there's an argument to be made, as Aaron was saying, that it's time for a government to start looking more like the rest of the state does. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who feel like, wow, uh, Capuano is did what he said he was going to do, continues to be consistent voice, also has a lot of endorsements by people that should be persuasive to some voters. Um, he's got, first of all, Congressman John Lewis, uh -huh. who everybody knows with a storied civil rights uh, history. He's got Marty Walsh um, here in town. So he's got Deval some... Patrick. And Deval yep. Patrick, some, the former governor. Some big hitters in his corner. On Ayanna's side, she's got Maura Healy. That was a huge deal for her 
and some other smaller endorsements. I know we've had discussions about the weight of endorsements in general, but in this race, how much does it matter? You know, I think it, it, we do know from political science that um, endorsements very, matter very little with voters, but it does matter for fundraising mm. and, you know, um, sending out those cues. But I think in this race it's different because it's such a different race. A lot of Democrats are like, I wish I didn't have to vote or I'm glad I don't live in that district. Yeah, it's a tough decision. Right. For a lot of I mean, Capuano <coughs> has a lot of seniority, and if Ayanna Presley gets in, she doesn't have that seniority. But um, Which, it, by the way, is a big thing. It is a, a huge thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and in terms of you know bringing back material goodies to the district, mm -hmm. um, she's going to have a harder time. That's just because she would be new, not because she's a more or less effective politician. So I do think these endorsements have um, done one thing, and that is further complicate the race. <laughs> it hasn't um, provided any clarity. You know, I've seen a lot of women saying, "Oh, the guys are sticking together." That's no big surprise. It's a very um, intersectional race. Deval Patrick, John Lewis, um, two you know uh, African Americans siding with the incumbent. And then Maura Healy, a white female, siding with the female. It begs this question of who's running Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to add, too, like, we know if Ayanna Presley were to win, she doesn't have the seniority, but we do know that when women and women of color get elected, they bring different issues to the fore. Mm -hmm. To Shannon's point, they might vote very similarly, but it, it expands the agenda space. So I think the endorsements do matter in this race, but they only make it more complicated for people who don't know who to pick amongst two candidates that are quite popular amongst Democrats. Um, Gerald, does it make a difference that there's a 13-point lead at last polling uh, with Capuano maintaining a 13-point lead over, over Ayanna Presley? At one point, it looked closer. Right. Yeah, and actually, the, uh, the uh, attorney general's endorsement came out after the first closer poll, and I assume that was a timed endorsement uh, with the idea that this would sort of help further the momentum. I was surprised to see that her, uh, that the margin had gotten a little uh, broader. But uh, the clip you played of Capuano, of course, is a perfect example of why, uh, obviously he, he gave a pitch that he knows Massachusetts voters uh, will resonate with them. And it is a 100%, you know, I'm a professional politician pitch. I know how to play the game to bring back the goodies. That's basically what he's saying. And he's not even being shy about it. And that's the thing about Massachusetts politics. Politicians don't have to be shy about the transactional nature of politics. In fact, they brag about their their ability to transact things on the behalf of their constituencies, and they do so openly. So one of the interesting uh, conundrums for Presley is she has to figure out a way to say that she could do that too. You know, she has to figure out a way to say that it's gonna. It's a tough one mm. to say I have the skills to be a good politician and to advocate for the interests of the district too. And and when you vote for me, you're investing in the future. You're investing in the future of the Congress, even. In other words, I, you know, I'm not a speechwriter, but it would be great if she didn't have to dance around representation, uh, descriptive representation, and was able to say descriptive representation actually impacts substantive representation. Mm, she said and that, here's though. why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, she said it, but it, it, it's left to people to try to understand right. what that means mm -hmm. and right, if they really right. believe her. Uh, Shannon, yeah. um, take. The 13-point lead <laughs> and also the endorsement question, and give me your assessment. So, I mean, I think, right, we have to think about, I'm a so quantitative social scientist, <laughs> right? But there's margins of error, and there are there are potential for errors in that. And so mm -hmm. you have to look over sort of the, the, the long game. Maybe the, the, the gap is widening. Maybe the numbers are a little off. Um, so I think it's still a pretty hard-to-call race. I don't Absolutely. think it will come in that far apart. 
um, to be honest, but you know, again, I'm, I'm always worried where you're making predictions after 2016, <laughs> yeah. and I told uh, everyone, don't worry about it. Don't, <laughs> yes. don't worry. Social media but reminds me of this error. <laughs> so I don't want to say <laughs> one, year one way, but I do think it will be uh, closer than that 13 I agree. Point it's so margin. hard to poll likely voters in a September 4th primary. Yeah, yeah that's right. So it's, right. It, you know, the pollsters, they're reporting polls. They don't know if their results are right. right. And, and that's not because it's a bad methodology. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a really hard methodology to figure out who's going to turn out right after Labor Day, et cetera. All right. Well, Look, given the, the given the difference between these candidates, if it wasn't closer, that would be shocking to me. We have uh, two candidates in that debate that are presenting really strong cases for themselves. It's really, this is nothing like, you know, sort of uh, the David and Goliath and the way it is in other parts of the country. She is someone who is, is much more capable and has the much better resume when it comes to being able to claim, I can play this game with the big boys. So to me, if she does lose this by a wide margin, the things that would potentially tell us would be pretty frightening. All right. Um, well, everybody will have one more opportunity to hear the two of them. Well, perhaps other local opportunities, smaller opportunities, but certainly uh, from WGBH on television next Wednesday, the 15th, Jim Browdy of Greater Boston is conducting a, de a debate with both Ayanna Presley and Michael Capuano. And so for people who are still pondering, um, that will be a good conversation for them to hear and see. Um, let's move on because there are a couple of other races, and we've mentioned the whole trend of black women and, and women running across the country. But, Gerald, you pointed out, uh, you look, took a look at the race with uh, Richard Neal and Tihara Amatul Wadud and right. noted that that was very different from, from the race that we've just discussed between Ayanna Presley and Michael Capuano. And you know, before you say anything, let me just remind people, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, Erin O'Brien of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, whom I'm going to turn to in a minute. And they're all contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog, which you can find on the WGBH website. And we're dedicating this entire hour to local and national politics. So now, Gerald. Right. So what you have in uh, the candidate, Amatul Wadud, is a highly qualified, uh, successful attorney who's been uh, a policy advocate and an advocate for her community, a community leader for a long time. And she, quite frankly, doesn't have a prayer. <laughs> and it, par, okay. and part of the and part of the reason she doesn't have a prayer is th that she really is the stereotypical left-wing insurgent, mm -hmm. uh, and she is running. Us, politicians are corrupt, and we need to clean up politics, and we need people who won't take corporate money. And I will be that person uh, on top of a very specific policy message. So unfortunately, she's doing two things that voters in general, but certainly Massachusetts voters, aren't, aren't well attuned to. Well, Reform, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did why it work for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Why won't it work for her? Because th that's New York, mm -hmm. and this is Massachusetts. And that's don't, kind of don't part get of my Gerald point. started on this, Cal. <laughs> okay. We're going to go on the rest of the hour. Okay. But, right. So, so here's the thing. Uh -huh. She, she, Richard Neal has faced uh, opponents very much like her. They just happen to be coming at him from the right and saying everything in politics is awful and we need 
to stop corrupt politicians and et cetera. She's not really doing anything new in that regard. Her substantive message, which is I think excellent in terms of when she talks about specific policies, is too specific to draw in the sort of medium or low information voter. She's in a very difficult bind there, right? And of course, one of her biggest taglines is uh, he has tons of money from corporate PACs and he's only getting a little from liberal groups. Well. Uh, the thing is, she's not taking corporate money, but she doesn't have any money. In other words, <laughs> okay. so, so she's inadvertently showing us what happens when you don't take corporate PAC money. You don't have any money. Do you guys agree? Yeah. Um, uh, so I want to follow up. I'll, I'll, I'll make the point that Gerald often makes that I see him making about, um, and I think this is also important in a sort of a national context, that people want to say, so many people want to say, the Democrats need to move left, and that's where the Democrats need to go, and the Democrats will win if they go left. But left only works in some contexts. Um, I, I can't even remember her name now. In New York, I'm right? Oh, uh, right no, yes. no, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yes. yes. She won because it works in that context, right? But it doesn't work in other areas where voters, that's not where voters are. And so should the Democratic Party run more progressive candidates? In some places. In other places, they should not. They need to run more moderate candidates. Um, and so a left insurgency in that district doesn't win because mm. that's not where that district is. Um, and so I think it's really important to remember that, right, the, the Democratic Party is national, but House races are, lo are they're local, yes. right? They're very right, contextualized. Right. And so flank from the left, right, wins in the primary in some places, but not in others. And that's a place where it's just not going to, it's not going to happen. And Aaron, in fact, um, if you look at our Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's <laughs> race, she was very local in she, her approach. Yeah, so yes. people tend to think or talk yes. about her in terms of the left-wingedness of her right. approach. But really, it was about... Yeah, they Localness. talk about her as the yeah. bartender, because yeah. why not? Yeah. Bars are fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, that's a great visual. Yeah. But she was very active in local politics. She had a great grassroots connections. She'd been involved in local and Sanders races. So she knew that community and knew that community well and knew it in a political sense. Whereas Amatul Badud is has never run before. Um, she has a, a, a thick resume. It's not a political resume. And at least from the outside, I don't know her personally, she doesn't seem to have the same sort of grassroots connection. So if you're going to run from the left or run from the, you know, a more moderate stance, that's one thing. But if you're running an insurgency campaign, and this is what that is, you have to know that district mm -hmm. really well politically. It's one thing to live there and be at the right events, and it's another thing to have it, having gone door to door, know who the small donors are, know what and events to show up at. All right, and then Wadud is also a, a Muslim, and, that's, and so she's in the communities within the district that aren't necessarily as interactive with the larger community. She's not familiar to the players in the district's politics, mm. uh, to all of them. In the, and so that's, again, these are practical problems that she has. Mm. But ultimately, she's just running a, an insurgency campaign in a place where voters don't particularly, average voters don't particularly care for insurgents. So the last uh, race in this general category then is the one with Jeffrey Sanchez facing off with Nakia Elugardo. And that's been also characterized as a super left person going against um, very much an incumbent with power because, as everybody knows, Jeffrey Sanchez is the head of the Ways and Means Committee. He's also the highest-ranking Latino legislator in the state, um, perhaps ever. And so here we have a kind of mm -hmm. uh, similar incumbent versus outsider, but do we? 
Well, funny thing about governing yeah. is you do have to, you, when you get that, you know, you just gave, he has a very uh, high position in the Democratic Party, but that means you have to compromise. And when he compromised, many in the district were not pleased because the budget compromise didn't include protections for immigrants that many in his district wanted. He himself wanted it. He himself couldn't get it through. And so uh, the challenger in this race is able to say, as politicians do, you're anti-immigrant or you're not advocating for us or, you know, you're too separated from the district. Well, that's what happens in institutional politics. It's not pretty, but it is a regularity, but it makes it hard to campaign. So do, does she have a chance? Far from what how uh, Gerald described um, Amatul Wadud's um, uh, chances. Know, uh, I mean, the September 4th, we've set references several times now. Yes. September 4th is a horrific date. Um, a, it's back to school. But yeah. B, <laughs> yeah. politically, uh, it's a really bad uh, date to be um, having these races. So that hurts all challengers across mm. the board in Massachusetts. I think she'll perform better than the race we just talked about. But if you're in charge of that committee, uh, as he is, uh, you've got a lot of people that want to see you win. Yeah. Um, so I think his donor base times September 4th just makes it so that um, she might perform, but I bet she loses by double digits. Same question to you, Shannon. Yeah, and, you I'll, and I'll also add, uh, mm. you know, the further down ballot you get, the less voters tend to mm. know about these sorts of races. And so right. the more right. important that little I incumbent next to your name matters, um, particularly in a primary where you don't have a D or R to differentiate between mm. candidates. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, the, the real challenge for her is to get her name out, to be recognized, and to have voters know, right, who she is and what the difference is. Um, and in state legislative races, it's just, it's really, even though the districts are smaller, it's mm -hmm. really hard to do that because people are paying attention to their congressional race, the secretary of state, the gubernatorial, right? Mm -hmm. right? All of those other races are first before that state legislative race. And so that's a real challenge on down ballot races when you're challenging an incumbent. All right. So I want to move on to another race that maybe has some of these issues, but totally different characters. Josh Zakem is challenging 24-year incumbent Galvin for the Secretary of State. He was endorsed at the Democratic Convention, shockingly to many people. Um, initially, I know this because I tried to get Galvin on this program to talk about <laughs> his candidacy, and he was no. very much unavailable. Mm. Uh, yeah. But now they seem to both be out right. um, campaigning. Just trying to get a quick assessment from you all about where does this look to you at this point? Uh, I would say... You know, I think Galvin's really vulnerable. Um, he has not been particularly progressive uh, on issues of voting rights, voting access. Uh, he's a real sort of Johnny-come-lately to that. Um, Massachusetts lags behind so many other states in widening access to the ballot. In a Democratic state, I just find that hard to believe. Mm -hmm. And so I think M. Zakim has a real message that uh, will resonate with Democratic voters. And so that's probably why Galvin is now all of a sudden willing to come on your show. Because <laughs> before... Oh, not my show. He's just right, talking right, now, just in talking, general. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, generally yeah. speaking, if you're an incumbent, you have the yeah. incumbency advantage, you just, you don't want to say much. You right. don't want to mess it up. And you only have to start doing stuff when you're worried and you have a serious challenge. And I think he really does. And regardless of who wins the primary, uh, you can see Galvin starting to take some action on opening up, you know, automatic voter registration and things like that, um, early voting. And so I think net, no matter who wins, it's going to be good for the residents of the state of Massachusetts that we're going to start seeing some more uh, progressive ballot access uh, laws and practices in the state, which is good. That's Shannon Jenkins of UMass uh, Dartmouth. Uh, Gerald Duquette, do you agree? 
I do agree. I really agree that he's getting pressured uh, on policy from the left from a, an energetic young campaigner. But there's another angle to this that I have uh, sort of uh, been privy to, having talked to a lot of politicians in the state. A lot of politicians who would never say this out loud say, you know, Galvin has <laughs> right. been around for 25 years, but he doesn't do favors very well. He, In other words, oh. he's actually allowed his quid pro quo, uh, his, uh, you know, the, the old school politics. He hasn't been quite as um, attentive to the interests of his fellow politicians in the state. And so in addition to having a problem with uh, policy that might cause average voters to uh, wake up, there are a lot of established politicians who have already endorsed his opponent in a way that should be surprising to folks. And there are even those who haven't endorsed anybody or have endorsed him who aren't that thrilled with his, you know, sort of behind the scenes uh, political partnerships. Interesting. Erin uh, O'Brien. This one's personal. Most of my research is on race and voter access. And Massachusetts, to Shannon's point, we're not, we're back of the path. We're with states you don't want to run with mm -hmm. when it comes to voter access. You know, we don't have same day registration. We're not having early voting and the midterms. And Galvin's been there for like 24 years. Mm -hmm. He is an arm of the status quo. I actually thought Gerald was going to say something different, that um, existing politicians don't want to make it easier to vote because it rocks their vote. Mm -hmm. And so Galvin has very much been an arm of that. So I think, you know, anytime there's a race, uh, you, you pick someone's record apart, and sometimes you offer unfair critiques. As an empirical matter, Josh Sakem's, um critiques of Galvin are very merited. Uh, Massachusetts has been incredibly slow to expand access to a legal ballot, and Galvin's been someone standing in that way. And so I find if you're someone who wants it to make it easier for people to cast a legal ballot, then Josh Sakem's your guy, and that's why some in the Democratic Party have abandoned him, even though inside they might be a little nervous. I, I've been on a panel mm -hmm. with a state senator who will remain nameless. It says, I don't want to make these changes mm -hmm. because I know how to win in my district right now. And so right. we've been talking a lot about insurgent candidates, I think this is an inch, uh, a more of an insurgent policy position. Uh, I'm really embarrassed of the way that we vote in Massachusetts, just how hard we make it 30 days before you have to be registered, all this ridiculousness. Galvin picked September 4th. So uh, yeah. just as a matter of access to the ballot, Josh Zakem is making very meritorious critiques to my mind. Uh, and just, I would point out that if people don't understand the power of the Secretary of State, uh, it was Galvin that got to pick the date of the primary, yep, yes. yep. September right. the 4th, so yep. they uh -huh. can do that. Yes. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with three of the contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, Erin O'Brien of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. And we're dedicating the entire hour to local and national politics. Uh, just one little addendum. There is an automatic voter registration bill uh, that Galvin came to support late in the process that is on Charlie Baker's desk, the governor. As of this taping, uh, he's expected to sign it, we think, but it's one of those bills that are awaiting his signature, yeah. so it's unclear at this and point. And it would be a big step forward. It would be, yeah. Massachusetts would move up those rankings very dramatically if that bill passes. It's a good bill. All right, let's turn our attention to the Suffolk County DA's race, which has gotten quite a bit of heat and attention. <laughs> this is the race that, again, was held by a long-term uh, incumbent, Dan Conley, and he stepped aside of someone who has worked very closely with him and considered as heir apparent, even if that has not been stated overtly, is uh, Greg Henning, who's one of the candidates. But then there are several other candidates. Most of them are uh, black and progressive. Greg Henning is not 
black. I'm not saying whether he, he can describe himself as he wants, whether he's progressive. It's become very intense. One of the, the first things that I wanted to discuss is because there are these candidates of colors, several of them, there was an attempt by former state senator Diane Wilkerson to see if she could, from a political standpoint, get folks to coalesce around one candidate in her estimation and would be a way of having a stronger placing, a position rather, to win the race. Solidly rejected, and a lot of people <laughs> upset about it, in fact. Just wanted to get your take on that. Um, I'll start with you, Gerald. I think that it's a very classic sort of uh, dilemma in terms of uh, internally in the Democratic Party, which we're seeing played out, is there are those who would like to have a chance to win, and they don't have the organization. So they are naturally going to see that the, those with the organization uh, must be somehow, you know, doing something uh, undemocratic. In other words, it's sort of a uh, it's a dilemma because you can't really be successful in politics without good organization. You can't just good organization doesn't just crop up organically. It has to be developed and worked, and it takes time. And you know what? That means that the people who have good organization are not necessarily going to be, you know, the populist or the, the, the insurgent type, right? So you've got this problem of insurgents wanting to have an open process, and people who've been in, in the process for a long time understanding that an open process doesn't actually produce viable nominees. And so it's a dilemma, right? These are both sides have something positive or something reasonable to say, but they really do have to get in some respect on the same page. The question is, can the insurgents somehow negotiate a piece of the pie and come together with the establishment folks, if you will, to present a united front? So, Aaron O'Brien, is it a good idea um, uh, in your political science book of victories? <laughs> uh, um, Slim does, <laughs> does it work? <laughs> does it work when there are efforts like this to get a coal to get a coalition behind one candidate? It, I mean, the cruel irony is, yes, uh, Wilkerson's advice is the right advice, um, but who wants to drop out? It's mm -hmm. like, you know, not to mitigate, like, the real concerns of this race. But it's like when you're high school and three girls like the same guy, you're like, you two should drop out, so I have them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I was going to use that example, by the right, way. Right, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> but it is the case that, like, yes, strategically, she's right. Strategic voting, if you want to see a candidate of color in there, especially in the DA. Mm -hmm. I mean, sentencing reform, there's so many reforms that communities of color in particular are disproportionately affected by. But if you're one of those three or four candidates and you're told to drop out, you're like, forget it. Um, so uh, it's the right advice, but it's incredibly hard to implement because no one owns that seat. You've got people behind you that very much believe in you. And I also think it, it unfairly says, you know, all candidates, again, I think it's the right strategic advice, but all, not all candidates of color have the exact same yes. positions. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it becomes, you know, you're not a token, but um, you're all interchangeable. And I know that's not what she means, right. but if you want that person in. So it, it's, it's a real difficult rub to get that through. And it's actually more difficult when you have the insurgent not willing to sort of say, okay, I'll drop out if you give me this job so I can run later. In other words, if the insurgent is truly an ideologue and truly wanting to not do the same old thing, they won't actually take the deal, so to speak, and they'll be upset about being offered the deal because the deal is corruption. Well, and in this case, there's more than one insurgent, so you've got a lot of people trying to you know, figure out. And, and most of the other ones, I should mention, Shannon, before you speak, right. that uh, there is some deep resentment by others in the race that Rachel Rollins is really the candidate that that they believe folks want to coalesce around right. or or certain folks want to coalesce around and so 
uh, the rest of them are saying, really? No, um, you don't get to decide my candidacy. You know, the voters get to decide, you know, wh who I am to them. So and I, I'm looking at Erin's notes again, and she's made the same notes that I want to talk about. <laughs> and, and, and that's the whole idea of this is a problem because of the rules, the way we run elections, right? A plurality candidate wins. So you win with 35% of the vote, 25% of the vote, so long as that's one more vote than anyone else. And this is the problem then when you have multiple insurgent candidates. Um, and I think we're going to talk about this maybe later, mm. but um, this is the problem mm. that's happened in California yeah. with what they call it the top two or the jungle primary. Right. Um, a better example, I think we would all agree, as political scientists is our neighbor to the north, which is mm. Maine, which has implemented ranked choice voting. And, and in this situation, it is ideal for ranked choice voting, right? Because yeah. you have, you know, a number of insurgents where you could say, well, these are my top four, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe the, the the white candidate who is, from what I understand, you know, less progressive than these yeah. other candidates, you rank him fifth. And then even though he may get the most votes initially through a ranked choice voting process, he wouldn't end up being the winner. This is really hard to explain to people. We, uh, hmm. my, my husband and I, who works at my university, being wonky political scientists, <laughs> we implemented ranked choice voting for our faculty senate. And all, of our, at your house. All, of, all of our fellow <laughs> academics were, started saying, what are you doing? I, I mean, these are people who have PhDs. They cannot understand. So it's a really hard sell to people, this ranked choice system. But I think most political scientists better. would agree in this situation, and in most situations, it is a better way to run elections. Yep. Um, and I will also point out that Zachem is in favor of this. Oh, um, that is, Josh that, yeah, that yeah. is yeah. one of his, yeah. uh, his platforms, yes. mm -hmm. um, where Bill Galvin, that is not his on his platform. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that's, again, another example where he's really interested in reforming forming our electoral system to be aligned with mm -hmm. best practices. So let me raise another point about this race in general, and that is it's, it's a part of a campaign that the ACLU is running called yeah. What a Difference a DA Makes, yep. uh, because um, the organization, uh, this is nonpartisan, the organization has realized that people really don't have a good sense of the power of the DA. Um, and we have just seen, just uh, in these other primaries across the nation where it works and in a place that has some significance in this way. Uh, so in Ferguson, Missouri, where the DA uh, was roundly criticized by the beginning uh, group uh, Black Lives Matter, that's one of the places where Black Lives Matter really became Black Lives Matter, um, that organization turned its attention mm -hmm. to local efforts to go out and make people understand the power of that mm -hmm. DA and to get Bill, the McCullough, who was the um, the uh, DA during the case of Michael Brown, who was killed in uh, Ferguson by Darren Wilson, the police officer, to get him out of office, and he's out of office. Mm -hmm. um, there is now a new young DA, African-American guy, uh, and that was the direct result of that community coming together. And that's not the purpose of the ACLU is just trying to get people to understand, look, this is, they make all these decisions. Uh -huh. There's been quite a bit of interest in this, in this race, by the way. Um, so we're just wanting you to get to respond to that, so Shannon. I, I, I want to mm -hmm. also, I, I'm eager to jump in because uh, God love the ACLU for drawing attention to this, but I think the other person who's doing this that might be more successful is John Oliver. Yes. Who and just John Legend. Uh, and correct. John Legend. A huge that is correct. In hysterical way. But and I mean, you know it, what? It let, me, let me play a clip from John Oliver. So here we go. <laughs> nice. John Oliver actually takes on the importance of the DA races on a recent episode of his show <laughs> last week tonight. Prosecutors decide whether you get charged and what you get charged with and therefore heavily influence what kind of sentence you could face. And you, you sort of know deep down how important they are because of a little phrase that crops up constantly in local news crime stories. 
Ultimately, it'll be prosecutors who decide whether charges will be filed. Prosecutors will decide what happens next. Prosecutors will decide. Prosecutors will decide. Prosecutors will decide. Prosecutors will decide. Exactly. Prosecutors will decide. There you have it. No, yeah, and I, you know, I was, I was writing on this recently, and, and John Oliver also cited the statistic. You know, somewhere over ninety-five percent of cases are not. You know, we think of the the judge and the jury and all that, but it's really it's through plea bargaining. Um, and you know, there's just a lot of research on implicit biases, and um, people don't necessarily knowingly approach these sorts of situations with uh, you know racist or racial attitudes, but they're they're there. Um, and so these decisions disproportionately impact communities of color. Um, and it is such a critical, critical race. And women and uh, minorities are not represented as prosecutors. There is a study, it was done maybe 2015. Um, many you know, uh, prosecutors are elected. Um, I think 14 states have no prosecutors of color at all mm. in the entire state, yeah. right? Um, it's it's so, so important. So I'm really glad we're highlighting this because it's a down-ballot race that people don't know a lot about, and but they really should be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. um, Gerald, you wanted to make one comment? Uh, no. Okay, good. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Aaron, did you? Uh, no, yeah. I would just concur with that. And I think it, it, everything Shannon said, just to add that if you're disgusted with the national spectacle, and not everybody is, but a lot of people are. Um, <laughs> if you're one of the DA race is a place that you can have real impact. And so, you know, uh, the ACLU's efforts and some of these celebrities that are, are involved, it really is a place where a few votes can have major material change. All right. Well, we're going to leave the first part of our conversation right there and tell you that coming up, more political analysis with the Mass Politics Profs. Now that we've covered the biggest races in the upcoming Massachusetts primary, what is the impact of this year's failed budget bill, which sank at the end of the latest legislative session, the impact on education? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. This week, we're dedicating our whole show to local and national politics. Three of the mass politics profs are here to give us their insight and analysis. I'm here at the Boston Public Library, the WGBH Satellite Studio, with Shannon Jenkins, professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, Aaron O'Brien, associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and joining me from the studios of New England Public Radio, Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. They are all contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog on the WGBH website. Well, let's jump right back into our conversation. Um, I did want to tag out one thing um, with regard to our conversation about women and uh, black women in some of these races and insurgent candidates, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Tom Perez, who is the head of the Democratic Party, actually in July, at the end of July, apologized, uh, issued a public apology saying that the Democratic Party had really not been very responsive to some of what Gerald is calling insurgent candidates or even paying attention in a serious way or just making assumptions to go with whomever the incumbent was. Um, on a recent show, uh, under the radar show, we talked about the Rhode Island Democrats who had to rescind 
two of their endorsements, one from a guy who is a criminal and the other from a guy who was a former Trump supporter who was opposing a quote-unquote unsurging candidate who is a waitress. And as she said, A, she wondered why the party could not have Googled the criminal, <laughs> and, and then as re with regard to the guy that she was facing or is facing uh, for the role um, to say, really, you're going to oppose me and this guy was not even on the same page with what some of the values we say that we stand for are all about. So I just wanted to put a button on that to say that there is a lot that when we talk about these races here in Massachusetts, there's a lot of national context going on. Um, so that's one part. The other part that I wanted you all just briefly to respond to is whether or not you think the Trump influence, that would be President Trump's influence, um, has some weight here in Massachusetts. There is a very strong uh, group of folks who are running against Elizabeth Warren. People still think that she'll come out okay. But beyond that, do you see that there is an influence here that should be noted? Mm -hmm. I think you named the only place that there's been a real influence. Mm -hmm. Jeff Deal has very much run uh, similarly to Trump on immigration. He's against family separation. What a bold stance there. But as really running on ICE and all these other things, <laughs> when he first came out, his thing was, you know, I won't write a book. Okay, um, like Elizabeth Warren does it, you know, I mean, talk about anti-intellectualism. So I think, you know, Trump voters in Massachusetts have nowhere to go. They might have problems with Charlie Baker, but he's your only guy that's really out there. What are there for? I forget exactly in, in the state Senate right now. But um, the only person on a state level that I see giving a lot of voice or sort of a taking on the plank of Trump is Jeff Deal. I, I'll also I'll add to that um, down down on the south coast. Uh, you know, Bill Keating is is uh, running as a Tedeschi, um, and so that's going to be a strong challenge simply because of the the money that that he has as his disposal. Um, but I think there are certainly pockets of those Trump voters down in in Keating's district, and so um, I do think Keating is a little nervous. Bill Keating, representative, I should say that for our listeners, um, he's my representative down right now, and and so I think he is nervous about. Uh, about that challenge down there and we'll be campaigning hard. And that's an area of the state where um, that sort of message can resonate as well. So, Gerald, um, we should not... I mean, I've heard a lot of people say blue wave, but I, I don't know that that's really what's happening. And, um, you know, some of the comments that we're making here, that even in Massachusetts, um, that's not necessarily what's happening. Well, in Massachusetts, it's not necessary, yeah. I guess you could say. But, um, but in terms of the... the uh, influence of Trump in uh, Massachusetts elections. I, at, at a, in statewide elections, it's you know negligible. Uh, it's interesting to talk about. There certainly is a small band of uh, noisy, cantankerous folks out there that we call the the sort of Trump-style uh, Republicans. In this, um, you know, we have Tea Partiers, but they're they're not. They don't have any influence over statewide races. Now, the the Keating race, which uh, we were just talking about, maybe they have. You know, particular strength in some local area, but the reality is that they're not. They're they're actually more useful to uh, Democrats, probably in general, than they are uh, threatening. Hmm. I, okay. I, I want to come back to the whole issue of the, of the blue wave, if I can, real quick, though, because I, you know, the indicators that we're getting from all these special elections are the margins are certainly narrowing um, for the Republican Party in many districts. In the Ohio special election, we saw that. Um, but I can also see it on the ground that, right, so I think about in our local community, um, 
they're they're doing volunteer. There's a group of women of a certain age, shall we say, who are very angered and still angered um, from 2016. Um, I know uh, my stepmother is is involved in a group, and they're they're like traveling on weekends to competitive districts. They are really? researching okay. races in across the country where they can give money, and so. It, it, it kind of blows my mind that they're still doing this, right? Like <laughs> yeah. two years later. Um, and so I, I don't want to say that it's a for sure thing, um, but I do think there's lots of signs that there are groups of voters who are very angry right now, and they are working in ways that they hadn't in the past. So um, I do think it will be a, a, a good election for the Democrats nationwide. I don't think, to Gerald's point, I mean, 10 points, five points, it doesn't really matter in Massachusetts because we tend to elect Democrats anyways. Mm -hmm. um, but it may matter, I think it will matter in some other places if the signs continue to, to indicate what they have been. Okay, I just want to um, uh, point out that there are also some ballot questions coming up. Um, and that's further on down, but just for so people understand, um, the number one ballot question has to do with the, the whether or not there should be a limit on the number of nurses um, assigned uh, to s certain levels of care. That's been widely discussed. I certainly had an hour discussion on on um, on our show, so people can listen to that. But that's that's getting a lot of attention, and also. Um, the question number two is, is about whether people want to establish a commission to look into the impact of political spending in Massachusetts and recommendations on political amendments to the U.S. Constitution. And the third uh, question uh, is the option to repeal the transgender public accommodations law that Governor Charlie Baker signed in 2016. I'm mentioning those because just like this September 4th primary, not a lot of attention except maybe for the nurses one. Um, and it's coming up, and people need to be getting ready to pay attention to it. So moving on to another local issue. Now, uh, Aaron, you pointed this out. Um, the study that uh, the Boston Globe reported on um, about increased segregation in the Boston public school system, except um, as I see it and as you pointed out, this is a state legislature issue mm -hmm. because there was no or some say not enough funding. First, let's hear from Jessica Tang, the head of the Boston Teachers Union on Greater Boston. Tuesday, she appeared talking about this with Jim Browdy. The conversation was about this new report by the Boston Globe and, and, and the racial makeup of Boston public schools. This is Jessica Tang, the head of the Boston Teachers Union. I think that when you're in a school that's been systematically under-resourced and under-invested in, and we've had opportunities at the state legislature, for example, in this past session, to actually change the funding formula. It hasn't been changed in 25 years, or implement recommendations that were given three years ago, and haven't, for example, increased the revenue in our schools that don't have a full-time nurse, don't have a social worker, guidance counselors, and staffing that we know students need, then you start to wonder, well, then who does care? There was just a big caca at the end here with the with the budget <laughs> bill. It's the best way to put it. And, yeah. and, and, I, I and know a, what you meant. And a lot of stuff just didn't get dealt with. And this is one of them. It seems as though it's going to have wider implications later. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, it, it's a really bad look. Beyond the obvious equity issues, the material messages sent to kids, and we know kids learn from a very early age by their surroundings what, what message is being sent to them on terms of funding and structural support and all that. Nationally, if you you ask what's Massachusetts like, uh, it's racist when it comes to busing, right, and sports. You know, th those are two things you, you hear quite a bit. But I think what's going on here is 
I can't think of any politician in the state who's happy with what's going on in Boston City Schools, that it's more segregated than it was 20 years ago, but there's a lack of political will here. Right. Um, the busing um, narrative or events is telling. When you mess with kids in their schools, what they tried to change, what was it, the hours a year or two ago, and people went nuts. And so you risk your political fortune if you really start messing, not messing, if you start um, trying to make some improvements in the schools and improvements that some parents don't like. And so this is, I, I just think this is a case of politicians looking out for number one more than looking out for the community. There's not a lot of courage in this debate right now. But they don't seem to be to get punished for it. No. So just to make that point. Well, and it yeah. goes, it, it, I yeah. mean, unfortunately, it goes back to um, mm. who's more likely to vote. Mm. Um, those schools that are more resourced and have more family support also have, because of the way socioeconomic status is still the best predictor of who votes, uh, if everyone voted in Massachusetts or if everyone voted in Boston, the schools would look different. Yeah. Oh. I would also say that socioeconomic status is one of the best predictors of a student's academic achievement. Yep. Um, and so those two things are so highly correlated that that's why that happens. And I, I also think in a certain sense, right, um, you know, we talk about de jure segregation versus de facto segregation. And de jure segregation is, is, is established by law, right? You right. know, redlining, Jim Crow laws. And that's not easy, but it's easier to deal right. with because, you don't, you know, you, you repeal law. The de facto segregation that sort of happens by fact or circumstance, right, it's much harder mm -hmm. to deal with. And it takes a lot to deal with that. And there's not a lot of political will. Um, I do think that quote mentions the, um, the foundation budget. Um, and, and, and that is one way that the legislature could deal with it, but the way that they would have to deal with it is not to change the foundation budget, which is what they use to determine how to distribute state funds. If they do that and they keep funding the same, it's going to hurt wealthier communities. And mm. so politicians don't want to do that because those people vote. So what you have to do in order to make this happen is to change the foundation budget and simultaneously increase by a lot, spending on schools so that the foundation, that money from the revision, then funnels into the schools that need it most. That's hard, that's hard work, and I don't think voters necessarily reward hard work. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. that's sort of why yeah. we are where we are. We have a great school system mm -hmm. in Massachusetts, but one of the largest racial gaps in achievement in the country. Yep. Okay, Shannon, we talked about this ranked choice um, that Maine is going to, is, has undertaken. Um, they'll ha take a while to count the votes on the back end. We did not talk about it, and I want to get each of you just a small take on this, California's all-inclusive primary, which it's is horrible. really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, all, it doesn't matter what party you're in, allegedly, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> except as I understand it from the analysis, you know, you could end up with all Republicans on one ballot or all Democrats. The, the hopeful mix was that you'd have a mix. Um, but people are still apparently voting as if they were Republicans and Democrats and not sort of in a broad way. Yeah, I mean, it's again, if, if a bunch of political scientists sat down, we would have said, don't do it, no. don't do right. it, right? Um, because what, what you had, the concerns for Democrats and the Republicans were maybe you have one Republican candidate and four Democrats, right. or two Republican candidates and six Democrats, and then the two Republicans each get 20%, and all the, the Democrats get like 10. Then you've got two Republicans, even though the Democrats collectively have right. more votes. Um, so there was real 
real concerns running up to the California primary that you end up in a, it's, it's, they also call it a jungle primary because it's a war of all against all, mm -hmm. right? That you end up with candidates who are not reflective of the voter's choice. A ranked choice voting system is so much better because yes. it allows candidates to say, well, if you're a Republican, I want this Republican first and this Republican second and this Republican third and then the Democrats. And so if your number one guy or gal doesn't win, then your vote goes to number two. Mm. They don't win and it goes to number three. Um, and so it allows voters to express truer preferences right. without having your side or your team potentially lose out okay. for expressing those two preferences. It's just, a, a, you know, if I could pick a system, I would pick Maine system in a yeah. heartbeat. Well, Same. we have it in Cambridge. Yeah, oh, I didn't you know that. Yeah, yes. yeah, we do proportional yes. voting, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, you know, one or two and whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw a paper once. I just yeah. wanted, they were, they were wanted to compare cities that had ranked choice voting. So I knew Cambridge had it and they matched Cambridge with like, a Rust Belt town in the Midwest, and they're like, they're similar cities. And I'm like, no, no, they are not. They are uh, not. Sorry to interrupt, no, Darren. No. Okay, <laughs> Gerald, what do you think about ranked choice? And, uh, uh, ranked choice voting, I have the same positive uh, mm -hmm. sort of attitude as, as you know, 99% of political scientists, but the, the California uh, system is, is a mess. Okay. Uh, and it's a mess because it was premised on a, a falsehood, really, that, we, you know, we should be voting for candidates, not parties. And mm -hmm. every reform that starts with that premise is going to end up uh, being more trouble than it's worth. Wow. Okay. Erin? Same. It's too easy to game the system in California. Like, uh, all you have to do is what Shannon said. You know, 60% uh, of the district can vote for Democrats, but if, you know, those two Republicans got 20%, 20%, it means that the two least popular candidates actually are who you get to choose from. So, uh, you know, but I do want to say at least, like, I love that um, states and localities are playing around with some of these systems. Yeah, that one I think needs to be rejected, but things like, you know, ranked choice voting or automatic voter registration, there's a pretty universal dissent satisfaction with the way we run elections. And so I'd much rather have one failed experiment if it means more experimentation. Because we've got a lot of ways that uh, allow us to vote better, um, that better map our true preferences that we um, utilize all too infrequently. Well, I just hope that people go to the polls. Right. Yes. September 4th uh, is the primary. I know it's a tough day You've for gotta people. You've got to register, too. Uh, 30 well, days here. Yeah, just get get on it, people, because it's all, it's, it, this it's, is the yeah, time. You've missed the deadline for the primary right. now, but, but still. you still have time for the general. But, but the, I mean, how but There are plenty of people that? who are yeah. registered who yeah, can, who can vote. vote September the 4th, so I just want to say that date again. And also for people who are following the Ayanna Presley and Michael Capuano race, that's uh, District 7 uh, for Congress. There will be a debate on August 15th, Wednesday, with Jim Browdy on Greater Boston. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank it goes so quick. Always a vigorous and interesting conversation. Shannon Jenkins is professor of political science at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Erin O'Brien is associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Boston. And joining me from the studios of New England Public Radio, Gerald Duquette, associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. You can find more from the Mass Politics Profs on their blog, which can be found on the WGBH website. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our shows, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. 
Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.